A pretty unfamiliar text for us today. (laughs) Before we jump in, um, I have kind of a prelude and then an intro and then we'll get to the real stuff. So buckle up. This, uh, this week I was, I was thinking about sanctuary and I was thinking about just how, I don't know what the right word is, not surprised, um, delighted, maybe um, humbled I am by, by this community. And for a couple of reasons. And I was trying to put words to this and I was thinking about Wednesday night, we had our, our, our mid-Lent meal. Uh, a lot of you joined us for that meal on Wednesday night. It was delicious. Um, and you know, we don't, <laughs> we don't give a lot of planning to some of these kinds of events that we do. We just like to be together. And so we say, hey, let's come and hang out. And about midway through, I'm thinking, oh man, this is going to be a lot of work tonight. Um, there's a lot of messes to clean up here tonight. There's lots of chairs to put away and tables to roll out of this room and food that needs to get put somewhere. And I was a little stressed. And we ended our evening. And within about 10 minutes, everything was cleaned up, put away, stacked. It was incredible. And I was just watching so many of you jump in, rush in to help to serve, to make sure the things that need to get done got done. Another scenario that happened this week is we have a family in our community, the Smith family. Some of you know them, uh, Billy and Kate Smith. And they have three kids. Their oldest is named Marin, and she's 11 years old. And she was just recently diagnosed with leukemia. And they bumped up to a situation this week. They had an urgent need come up where she actually needed to be rushed into surgery over the weekend. And we, we just sent out a quick note. We just said, hey, Sanctuary, we've got this need. Let's, let's come alongside this family. Let's, let's do something for them. Let them know that we're thinking about them and caring for them. And I'll be honest, usually when we put out these kinds of requests, um, just straight dollars and cents, right? We'll get a few hundred dollars in response, which, which is really wonderful. That's meals for a week or two weeks, right? Depending on what you're doing. We had over $2,000 come in to support this family. And so I'm sitting here on the back end of the week and I'm going, what is going on <laughs> at Sanctuary? And as I was talking to Bishop Ed about all this, he reminded me of that Psalm that says, my people volunteer freely in the day of my power. And that helped to give some words to, I think, some of what I'm feeling, that we're sensing a little bit of a buzz in our community. We're sensing that God is up to something. And those are the easy moments for us to lean in and to participate and be part of something. But it's a little bit paradoxical. It's a little bit counterintuitive because when we think about God's power, we think that, well, if this is the business that God is up to and if it's God's power that's making it happen, isn't God just gonna do all the work for us? (laughs) Don't we just get to come and enjoy and relax? But that's not what we see happen. What we see is that as God is moving in communities of faith, as God is working in the world, what God does is invites us to be part of that work. This is part of our confession that we say every Sunday, that we confess that we can delight in God's will and walk in his ways. And it looks like this. It looks like being willing to roll a table into a closet 
and to stack a chair and to throw away a dirty bowl of food and then to come alongside people who are in need. So I say all that to say, it feels like God's up to something in sanctuary and I'm excited about that and you should be too. Moving on to some of our texts for today. Yeah, that's worth applauding. Some of our texts for today, again, I joke about the prodigal son story being unfamiliar to us, and in some ways it's problematic that it is so familiar to us because we think we know what the story has to offer us. Um, but there's another text that I want to draw our attention to this morning. This is out of Joshua chapter 5, beginning in verse 9, and what's, what's happened here is that the Israelites, they've left Egypt, they've spent 40 years in the wilderness, and now they have finally crossed over this River Jordan. They're finally moving into the land that God has promised to them. And this is one of the first scenes that we see. The Lord then said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the disgrace of Egypt from you. Therefore, that place is called Gilgal to this day. And while the Israelites camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, they kept the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month. The day after Passover, they ate unleavened bread and roasted grain from the produce of the land. And listen to this. And the day after they ate the produce of the land, the manna ceased. Since there was no more manna for the Israelites, they ate from the crops of the land of Canaan that year. So again, the Israelites in this moment, they've crossed over the Jordan, they're in the promised land, but they've not yet taken possession of the land. This is a kind of first taste of this place that has been promised to them, but not yet been given to them. This is the scenario, and God tells them, this is his promise, today I have rolled away the disgrace, I've rolled away the shame from Egypt. And then here's the result, which is again, a little paradoxical. The shame is rolled away, and now they no longer receive manna. Instead, they eat from the crops of the land, the text tells us. And here's what I want us to see out of this. That when God rolls away our shame, when we move into this reconciled relationship with God, when we are freed from disgrace, we're actually liberated into responsibility, not away from it. That when the manna ceases, one of the things we see happen is that this creation mandate is renewed, that now suddenly, because their shame has been rolled away, because they are becoming the people that God has imagined them to be, the manna ceases, and now this creation mandate is renewed. They're called and pressured into stewarding and caring for the gift that God has given to them. The people are in the land that God has promised, but they won't be spoon-fed here. They have to bear responsibility for cultivating the gift God has given to them. Oftentimes we imagine being liberated from our shame or liberated from our disgrace means that we are liberated into a freedom to do what we want to do. This is how we typically define freedom. But this isn't what we see. Again, like the Israelites, having our shame rolled away, it isn't the liberation that we think it is. 
It isn't freedom as we would imagine it. The liberation comes when we, as people who have no shame, rightly see our responsibility to one another. Responsibility here doesn't mean a kind of legalistic duty to God. We fulfill our responsibility to God by taking responsibility for one another. Our duty to God is our duty to our neighbor to care for the gifts that God has given us rather than expect God's manna handouts in the land that God has promised us. Jaki Alul, he says that the spirit presses us into responsibility. The spirit's pressure is, is different than every other kind of pressure in your life. And I'm sure if you're anything like me, you experience all kinds of pressure in your life. You experience work pressure and family pressure. There's social pressure. There's political pressure. All of these different kinds of forces pressing in on our lives. But the spirit's pressure is different. It's still forceful. It's still nudging us in a kind of direction, but it's a liberating pressure in a way that no other force can be. Too often, we try to press people into responsibility by shaming them or disgracing them, by leaving some power or leveraging some power in their life, playing on their fears in order to get them to do something for us. So much of our current public discourse, the way that we talk to one another in public forums hinges on this idea that if you disagree with me, what I need to do is shame you into agreement or embarrass you into admitting that you're wrong. If politics isn't your thing, maybe dogs are. We have a dog named Grover and I love him and I hate him. And when he was a puppy, he did all kinds of naughty things, and he still does. But my instinct, my natural, like, this is how we should respond to this naughtiness in this puppy, was to shame him. Was, his name's Grover, if I didn't mention that already, but he would do something like go potty in the house, and our response would be, Grover, Grover, what is this? Now, we took him to his first puppy class not too long after these kinds of moments. And they said, now, you know when you're talking to your dog, you never want to say their name in a way that shames them. And I said, what? (laughs) They said, yeah, because they always want, you always want them to respond to their name in positive ways. They always want to think that something good is about to happen when you speak their name, not that they're in trouble, not that they're being shamed. And you know what? This is silly, but it's true. It's true for my dog Grover, and it's true for one of us. He's five years old and still does not respond to his name in ways that we want him to. His first instinct when we say his name is to hunker a little, because he's thinking, what did I do? What did I do wrong? Again, this is just my stupid dog, but how much more true is it for you and for me that when God says that he rolls away our shame, this is not something that comes easily to us. We've not learned how to respond to our name in ways that don't assume we're in trouble, (laughs) that don't assume there's something wrong with us, broken with us. 
We need to learn what it is to walk in that life where there is no more shame and no more disgrace. And it turns out that what that life looks like means caring for our neighbors. It means that as people who don't know shame anymore, we can start to move into other spaces and announce to one another, your shame and your disgrace has been rolled away and help other people learn to live in that kind of life. Which leads us now to this story of the prodigal son. Again, this story is familiar, but almost too familiar. I was talking with Father Chris Green about this story this week, and he said, you know, this story, he called it a perfectly faceted diamond. Of course he would. A perfectly faceted diamond. That the more you turn it and the more you look at it, it doesn't get less interesting. It gets more and more fascinating. That's the story that we have today. And I wanna offer us a few maybe kind of scattered reflections because there's really so much going on here. I mean, we could spend weeks dissecting this story and we're just gonna spend a few moments. I think it's important for us to remember that this story is told against a certain backdrop. That Jesus is responding to a scenario. This isn't just a spontaneous story that Jesus is telling. And he's telling this parable against the backdrop of the grumbling of the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember, they say, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And also, because we've talked about the manna in the wilderness in this Joshua text, the grumbling of the scribes and the Pharisees, it should immediately take us back to the grumbling of the Israelites the grumbling of these people wandering in the wilderness and they're hungry, they're longing to go back to their slavery in Egypt because at least they fed us well there. They're grumbling and then God provides the manna. And so here we see the scribes and the Pharisees and they're grumbling about Jesus' openness to unworthy people. To kind of let the cat out of the bag a little early, the Pharisees are grumbling because they're witnessing Jesus as the one who is perfectly pressed by the Spirit. They're witnessing him take responsibility and care for the people that they don't think are deserving of his time, his dignity, worth bearing responsibility for in any way. This is the source of their grumbling. And it's against this backdrop their grumbling, their complaints about sinners and tax collectors where Jesus leads into these parables. So a couple of thoughts. I think because of how this story has often been told, it's easy to assume the worst about the younger brother. But we're really, if you're paying attention, we're not told that much about him. We know that the text says he lived foolishly, talks about dissolute living, which is, again, just foolishness, carelessness, but we don't know what that means. For all we know, this could have been him making some really poor investments. This could have been him trying to pull off some kind of extravagant philanthropic work out in the far country, and it just didn't come together. It could have been some kind of entrepreneurial task that just, again, Things don't align for him. We don't know what the foolishness is. All we know is that it was foolish. But again, you know and I know a lot of good people, 
We know a lot of well-intentioned people, people who have dreams about making a better world, who just do stupid things, who just live in ways that are foolish and extravagant, not actually responsible. We don't know if he wasted his inheritance on something silly or whether it was actually well-intentioned, whether he was trying to make of himself something better, something different. We have no idea. All we know is that he goes to the far country, he spends everything, and now he's in trouble. And part of why we shouldn't assume that he's inherently bad inherently evil, is because he still seems to be a person of character. Remember, he doesn't go off and start stealing. He doesn't go off and start cheating people. What's he do? He goes out and hires himself out. He goes and gets a job when things get really tough. And it turns out the job's not all that great because he's still going hungry. And even when he's hungry, it says that he longed for the pods that were given to the pigs, but he doesn't take them because they're not his. He still has some level of character. He still has a kind of moral code. So we shouldn't rush to this conclusion that he is a bad person. Now, there are a few possibilities here. Because we assume the worst about him, the only reason we really do is because we hear the echo of the older brother's words at the end of this story. Remember what he says about his younger brother to his father. He says, he's gone out and he's spent everything that he has on prostitutes. Well, where does that come from? (laughs) A few possibilities here. One, it's true. It might've just been true. We should assume there's a possibility in which his accusation is just true. There's another possibility where this is just rumor. This is the word on the father's property now that, well, you know, the reason that he had to come back groveling and had nothing is because he just went to the far country and spent everything that he had on prostitutes. That's a possibility. But the third possibility is that he makes this assumption because if he were in that position, that's exactly what he would do. It's what he fantasized about, right? It's what those sinners would do, those people who have the freedom to do what they want to do. Isn't that what they would do? We don't know. We just assume. And in any case, the younger brother, he's spent everything, he's in trouble, he's embarrassed, and the text says that he comes to his senses. But even in him coming to his senses, the thing that he thinks might fix all of this is to come back to his father's house, not as a son, but to come back as a hired hand, to come back like one of his father's slaves. So he gets up, he goes to his father, and this is the part that we love, that while the son was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. We love this story especially this part of the story. But again, this story is told against a particular backdrop. This isn't a standalone parable. Jesus has been telling a series of stories here, stories that you and I know. He tells the the story of the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go searching for the one. He tells the story of the woman who's lost the coin and turns her entire world upside down searching for it. 
But here, in this story, we have the father who lets his son leave and he doesn't, in fact, go searching for him. The father here seems to give his sons, both sons, room enough to become themselves while at the same time keeping an eye out for them. He's still looking for them. This, I think, says something about our posture toward one another, especially those of us with kids, that we often want to control and we want to monitor and we want to dictate and enforce rules, but there will come a time when we have to learn how to let the people we are responsible for become their own people. It doesn't mean that we don't look out for them. It doesn't mean that we don't keep an eye on the horizon. But it does mean that our responsibility can, in fact, lead us to letting go of our ideas of control and power. So the younger son returns. And the thing that he thinks to say is, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. This is his grand gesture. This is his speech to get him back in the door. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And it's as if the father doesn't hear him at all. He doesn't even address his son straight away. He instead, he turns to one of his slaves. And this is what he says, quick, bring out the best robe. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf. Let's celebrate because this son of mine has come home. He doesn't even dignify the son's position with a response. Instead, he says, no, 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 you need to hear me say to him, you are my son. Sometimes one of the ways that we take responsibility for one another is by letting other people hear us say things that are good and true and beautiful about them to other people. Oftentimes, the only thing that we hear about ourselves when it's among other groups is nothing but gossip or slander, or negativity, or rumor. We ought to let people overhear our conversations and let them be words of empowerment, words of dignity, words of belonging, things that are good and true and beautiful. This is what he lets his son overhear. And in a culture where gossip has its own economy, we ought to deal in words of life and belonging and affirmation. And to sometimes let those words be overheard more than they're heard. Say good things about people. So they celebrate, they party. Verse 24, and oftentimes this is where we want the story to end. We wanna stop here at the celebration and the party because things have kind of resolved. Things are okay here. The one who has left has returned, everything's fine, we're gonna party, let's pack this thing up. But this is part of the genius of this story, is that it doesn't resolve much of anything at all. We get no clean, happy ending of this story. We find out that while the party is happening, no one bothers to go and get the older son. No one bothers to get the brother who's out working in the field. And here's what I took from that this week is that it turns out that it's far easier to journey home from the far country than it is to make it home from the field. 
The road from the far country, those places of wilderness and exile, those places of shame and disgrace, that road is paved. Why is it paved? Because we travel it all the time. We are constantly going back and forth, being prodigals and finding ourselves as sons and daughters. We know this road. There are signs on this road. There are people traveling on this road with us. This is what we do. What's harder is to realize that even though you're in the field, even though you are close to the Father, you're actually further away from intimacy with the Father. And reconciling those kinds of dynamics are much, much more difficult. Again, it's easier to leave home and to come back again than it is to never have left at all, but let there be bitterness and envy in your heart. In any case, no one wants to invite the older brother. And we don't know if this is a mistake of the father. We don't know if it's the neglect from the prodigal of somebody actually said to him, hey, go get your brother, and he forgot to do it or he refused to do it. What we do know is that the older son, for for whatever reason, feels more comfortable coming back and talking to a slave than he does to his own father. He's more comfortable talking to a hired hand than going in the house and addressing his own father directly. He refuses to go in, and this is important. Both of these sons, these two brothers, they find it easier to identify themselves as hired hands, the servants of their father, than it is to see themselves rightly as children, as as sons who belong in the father's house. Remember, the, remember the, the younger brother says, make me like one of your hired hands, aspiring to be like one of the slaves in his father's house. And the older brother says, I have been slaving many years for you and never disobeyed your orders. See, the older brother, he only sees the work in his father's house as orders and not as responsibilities. Because somewhere he hasn't addressed the shame that causes him to identify more as a slave than as a son. If he could, if that shame could be rolled away from him, his work wouldn't be obeying orders or following commands. It would be partnering with his father and sharing in the responsibilities that cause him to care for this place and these people and making celebrations for others happen. So, the older son stays outside and the father again leaves his house and goes to him. Interesting, the father is the only one in this story who leaves his own house twice. Once to get his younger son, once to get his older son. And while the father comes out to his oldest son, the younger son doesn't come with him. Maybe he doesn't notice, but maybe he does. And the question we're left with is, has the younger son come back and not let that immaturity that led him away in the first place be resolved? Has he returned and has he returned unchanged in some way? The older brother isn't talking to the younger brother and the younger brother isn't talking to the older brother. And this is the point. No matter who you identify with this in this story, there is no easy resolve and there is no obvious good guy. 
The Pharisees and the scribes are outside talking about the sinners and the tax collectors. They're grumbling because Jesus has let those kinds of people into the party. But what those sinners and tax collectors are also going to hear in this parable is they've not done any of their work to reconcile their lives with the Pharisees and the scribes. Everyone is at odds with one another in this story. The sinners and the tax collectors are in the party, but they've not yet learned that the spirit is pressing them to take responsibility for those who aren't dancing yet. Their responsibility to go to them as the father has gone to them and extend that kind of invitation and that kind of welcome. When God rolls away our shame, we have to choose whether or not we will accept the invitation to celebrate those that we don't think deserve it. And when the party is thrown for us, can we welcome and forgive those who have judged us and wished ill toward us? And then that's the end of the story. We don't know if the younger brother wakes up the next day any different than the day that he came home. We don't know if the older brother goes to sleep that night seeing himself any differently, whether he's starting to consider himself a son or still just a slave in his father's house. Today, I have rolled away the shame and now get to work. This is the invitation. Amen.